Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On Commons People this week, it's a cabinet reshuffle reaction special. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hey Paul. We've also got Rachel Wormouth. Hello. Hello. And we've got Sajid Javid's former special advisor, Salma Shah. Hello. Hey Salma, how are you? Good. Not so not so current as a former that I've just come from being sacked <laughs> in the studio. But you're in demand. A former former. <laughs> well, yeah, it had been billed as a low-key rearranging of the deck chairs, but Boris Johnson's cabinet reshuffle today exploded into life with the shock resignation of Chancellor Sajid Javid. Javid had been feuding with Dominic Cummings for months and finally decided he'd had enough. 39-year-old Rishi Sunak caps a meteoric rise up the Tory ranks and takes over as Chancellor. Here he is. Good afternoon, Chancellor. How do you feel about taking over in these circumstances? Delighted to be appointed. Lots to get on with. Thanks very much. Are you going to be the Prime Minister's puppet? Paul, Javid's resignation was surprising, but not altogether a shock. I think a lot of people would say that the tensions were obviously evident and it looked like it was going to happen at some point. And the question was, was it going to be later this year? Was it going to be next year? It's quite sudden, though. I mean, the way in which it happened doesn't look planned at all, does it? Um, yeah, I can understand from Number 10's point of view, the big thing is wanting to... Like all number 10s want to do, they want to control everything. Yeah, that's fine. You've got a massive majority. You want to stamp your authority on the Treasury as, every, as, as well as everywhere else. But the way of going about it just looks so cack-handed, doesn't it? If you did genuinely have a big strategic attempt to do that, you would have planned it. You would have told Sajid Javid in advance. You wouldn't bounce it on him on the day. You might have even done it last night if you really have some sort of you know, plan for changing advisors of all things i think it must be bigger than advisors it must be just about number 10 really wanting to control the treasury's message um it's so ludicrous i'm, I'm giving them a lot of credit here it seems so ludicrous that you wouldn't have a chance of walking out over advisors just alone would you maybe you would with dominic cummings who knows anything goes but we shouldn't forget it's not all about dominic cummings it's ultimately the prime minister's decision this it's you can't say somehow some great evil machiavelli behind the scenes has done this it's the prime minister he obviously wants to stamp his authority everywhere yeah salma what did what do you make of events today well i have to say when the news started filtering in on twitter i was i was amazed and i actually didn't believe that it was possible because <laughs> you know I, I was on tv yesterday saying yes it would be very low-key and obviously boring key, yeah very, <laughs> very boring yeah and um Sort of, you know, the number 10 briefing that had happened, as is inevitable before a reshuffle, number 10 always briefs these kinds of things, gives a little bit of signal so it's not a surprise. So this, I think, really has upended the reshuffle. Um, there'll be a lot of kind of, uh, there'll be a lot of sort of lines coming out that say, oh, well, you know, it's an outcome that we wanted and that we were prepared for. And, you know, Rishi Sunak, who is brilliant, by the way, is, is ready and waiting um, to, to take up the Chancellor's position. But there is something about it, and I think you're right, Paul, is that, you know, the way that it has been choreographed doesn't feel that that's true. Because, you know, if it was just about advisers, why would you lose a chancellor three weeks out from a budget, no less, um, over something that seems actually quite trivial? It seems really strange. At the very least, it's very strange. We can agree on that. 
Uh, yeah. Do you think he made the right decision, your old boss, to go? Oh. I mean, you're not privy to all the conversations. No, I'm not privy to, the, to yeah. all the conversations. So, well, from what I know of him, yes. Because if you're in a situation where you're asked, and this is what reports are telling us, I don't know this for certain, but you are asked to get rid of your entire political team, that suggests to me that somebody is trying to neuter you. And, you know, how can you be a chancellor? I mean, it's that great criticism of him, chancellor in name only. Mm. How, how can you dispel that and have any kind of authority in your department that runs the economy if a simple matter of staffing um, you have no control over? It's not just neutering, is it? It's castration, let's be honest. Yeah, OK. That's a better word. <laughs> <laughs> that is the word. Go on. Yes, and I'm not sure that many men want to be castrated in that way. <laughs> so, in that sense, yes, he probably did make the right decision. <laughs> but this Walked is, away intact. It, it, this has been a long-running feud between Downing Street and the Treasury since Javid and Johnson took office, is it fair to say? So... The characteristics between number 10 and 11, and, you know, you're, you're all Westminster watchers, you, you all know how this works, is that there is always this natural tension that exists there. And I think, apart from David Cameron and George Osborne, I think they were actually unique in the, in the relationship that they had and that it was so smooth. In every other incarnation of, of these two, it's always been a little bit difficult, I think. Um, the, the problem is, as well, that... A lot of it is, is about personality now and not about the substance because there are some things that a chancellor has to do um, which is dealing with the political reality and being very honest with the advice that he or she gives the Prime Minister. And I think, you know, in, in that regard, this is not just, you know, a feud that's kind of about differences of policy opinion or anything else. It is very focused on personalities and I think if that is the case, then it's kind of it's sort of pointless to have lost the Chancellor over something as small as that. But Boris and Satch had a good relationship, yeah. I'm told. Yeah, I know, so, I'm sure I've witnessed it. They, yeah. had, they had a great relationship. So I, I'm not sure that this is the outcome that the Prime Minister really wanted. Yeah, interesting. It's all about that. That's a really good point about, you know, getting independent advice, really. You want someone who wants to stand up to you and not just be a yes person, you know, yes man, yes woman. And, and that we can come on to that as the theme of the whole reshuffle. But... I mean, to follow through the logic of this, yes, there's always that tension, but it's a creative tension between Treasury number 10 because if you're, if you're keen and sound and confident enough in your own mind and your own vision, you don't mind being challenged by the Treasury. You say, actually, there are rules about this, you know, you can't spend everything you want. That's his job. And, and as a PM, you say, all right, can we, can we cut a deal on this or that, this bit of defence? I want a bit more on that. But ultimately, you want a chance who is saying, actually, you know, I'm preserving everything in terms of fiscal rectitude. And I think the real problem with it is that the ultimate logical conclusion of this is, if you're not going to have an independent chancellor, are you going to then perhaps not have an independent Bank of England? Are you going to have any independent advice, special advisers are going to rule everything? Are you going to have civil servants that stand up to you? I mean, is this just the thin end of the wedge for the whole Boris Johnson government? That's the real problem with the message it sends out. So, I, I agree with that. I have to... Can I just play devil's advocate for a moment? And I don't want to make this all about one individual advisor because you, you rightly say this is about the Prime Minister. So let's think about what they've discussed in terms of their narrative and, you know, beating the red wall, breaking the red wall at the last election. They have a campaigning attitude towards government. Now, 
as a former special advisor, I recognise some of these frustrations. I recognise that actually you get a lot of independent advice and then you are left accountable for the decision that actually annoys people or upsets people or whatever it might be. So I have a lot of sympathy with the idea that actually if you're going to be responsible, then actually it, it should, you know, the, the advice that's, that's coming and the decisions that you're making should have some kind of semblance of control. However, um, I think, yeah, there are very legitimate questions about, you know, what happens with the independence of certain institutions that are there to be that ballast against, you know, <laughs> for want of a better word, tyranny. Um, <laughs> we're not quite there yet, don't I don't think. <laughs> but, um, you know, there, there, there is... I do, I do have um, a, a bit of a sort of um, a shared frustration in, in the way that some institutions do act because they ultimately don't have to be accountable to people. Um, so I get that, but I do worry about what you've just said. I wonder, on the last few weeks, it's been a case of that Sajid Javid and Boris Johnson were just entirely on the same page when it came to policy in terms of ripping up the Treasury rule book to favour the North, all these kinds of things. Was it your understanding that they were on the same page? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do think the way that I have always seen Sajid operate is that he's really a team player. And he's not somebody who uh, tries to be controversial for controversy's sake. He's not somebody who thrives on conflict in, in a way that a lot of our sort of adversarial politicians do. Um, you know, he, he did a very senior job in banking. He, you know, understood that actions have repercussions. So I don't see that there's any reason to doubt uh, that that relationship was actually quite solid, which is, which is the only reason that I, I, it gives me pause when uh, people are considering whether this was an, an intended outcome in the in the reshuffle, plus like Sajid's been through this, like very difficult times in government, you know, all the Brexit negotiations, been a lot of tough times. So it must have been something quite serious to just push him over the edge and just think, I have to go now. Yeah, but I think, but that's, it's, I go back to the point. You know, if the reports are correct and he was asked to fire his entire political team. You know, ministers don't have much capacity to decide who's around them apart from their special advisers. You know, they don't hire civil servants. They don't hire their, their deputies or the people that work for them in, in their departments. The, the prime minister does that. And so to lose any kind of structure around you that you have built does send a signal that actually what you're trying to do is make it impossible for somebody to do their job. No, listen, I also get the frustration around, you know, the way the special advisor system works. Um, but there are a lot of problems with it that, you know, require um, much deeper sort of changes than just kind of like trying to get rid of people and start again. There have been a couple of reports today that there might be a way back for him. Do you think he'd want that? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I think, he's, I think he probably has gone off to have a, a nice drink and just have a bit of a rest. And then we'll see what emerges. Play with his dog, who was famously, you know, in all oh, those videos. No. Oh, I love Bailey. Get to see more time, with, have more, his, more time with the dog. Bailey. More time with the dog, yeah. Bailey. And I think uh, the interesting thing is, what does he do next? You know, does he... I don't think you see him going on the back benches and making a Geoffrey Howe speech about how awful the government is. It's not his style. Um, but he needs to actually tell people, look... I wasn't pushed around. I didn't like being pushed around and being told what to do by somebody who's unelected. Um, and, you know, ultimately it's the Prime Minister's decision, but he, he needs to say to people, what's happened there? He can't just go out and do the usual sad thing saying, oh, actually, I'm not going to talk about this. Because you're absolutely right somewhere. He always tries to play down controversy. He never likes slamming it up. He is a team player. But now he might actually have to stand up and say, actually, 
there is a reason I'm no longer Chancellor. This is the reason. Uh, and be honest about it, because this could be quite a defining moment in his political career. People will take him, will give him a lot of credit and respect him a lot if he actually just tells the truth of what happened, instead of the usual flannel about, oh, well, you know, slight disagreement, I don't want to go into it. Y you know, no, this is big, this is a Chancellor yeah, losing his job, yeah, but walking don't forget, out. But don't forget, his team is still Boris Johnson. Of you course know, he's, it is. Still, he's still on Boris Johnson's team. He might not be in his cabinet, but he's but still he's not, gonna, he's not gonna overnight ruin an eighty majority by speaking out and telling the truth, is he? I mean that majority will be there whatever. No, that's so true. So it's but, not as if he's on a knife edge, the government is gonna trigger a general election. Yeah, but Paul, you are a, an estimable journalist of long standing in the lobby. So your whole thing is to be able to get a moment that you can report on. Of course but, it you know, is. Politicians <laughs> but the public as well like need that. to know, you know, what's gone on. And I just think, you know, for his own self-respect, he needs to stand up and say what really happened. Well, I, I, I agree. It will be interesting to see what he does in this scenario. And if I were advising him at this point, I'm not sure what I would tell him to do, because actually he's made a choice. It's cabinet collective responsibility. I mean, normally on issues, not not about staffing. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, does, does he want to make the case and does he want to, you know, give it to the Prime Minister with both barrels or does he want to quietly make his case, you know, in, in longer time? Does it have to be this big moment or is it that he's going to really understand, uh, you know, how he can make things better? And also, you know, he's, he's done, what, 10 years? At the, the real, you know, top of politics, you know, a long time in Cabinet. Are you going to tell me he needs a break now, are you? Yeah, maybe he does. <laughs> I would. I needed a break. I spent a long time with him, and I've had enough. <laughs> but that, I think that's part of the problem, which is that you know, this is a guy a few months ago was telling us all he wanted to be prime minister, right? Mm. He wanted to lead the country. He would have had much worse people facing him down the barrel of a gun than Dominic Cummings telling him what to do. So, so, and he would have then been in high-pressure situations, make a decision now, and explain that decision. He's in that situation now. You've gone under massive flack. You've made a massive decision. Can you explain it now and show? Yeah, but, that's, but that is again perhaps why, whether you were a leader or not. Yeah, but that's contextual. Or just a follower. He, he accepted that he was not going to be leader, and he accepted his position. And he was delighted to have been chancellor. Absolutely, and. But the, the times have changed. You know, he doesn't occupy that position anymore. He's not out there trying to sell himself as a leader. So you know. He has, to, he has to play it with the sort of hand he's been given. How, how do you think he'll be feeling now as kind of getting to Chancellor, um, making history as the first uh, Asian man to be Chancellor, um, and then never being able to deliver a budget and having to leave in these circumstances? I imagine, as it would be for any of us, quite bittersweet. But I think he is a very decisive person and he makes good decisions because they are based on... Um, fact and proper assessment and I think he won't regret it because he did it for a reason and if if reports are to be believed the you know the reason was a, a good one an honorable one yeah um, I agree with Paul I think I think he has a, a big opportunity to be heard now if he wants to be um, which group do you think he'd be most comfortable with would it be the ERG would it be blue-collar conservatives one nation Tories where do you think he'll ally himself now so uh, that's an interesting one because so many of them, you know, he, he can touch upon sort of having sympathy with so many of them, of those groups. And I think that's kind of been his success and maybe also part of, you know, the consequence of, of this departure is that he's never really allied himself to one group over another mm. because he is a compromiser. He is somebody who wants to see, you know, what the facts are and understand, you know, where people are coming from. So... 
again, you know, I think he, I think he'll sit somewhere in the middle, sort of surrounded by lots of different groups of people. Um, and that was his, this is why it's actually quite a sad thing, his departure from government, because he was somebody who could corral. He was somebody that could sort of bring two opposing sides together and find that compromise. Um, I think, I mean, not that I know, but my assessment from when the HS2 stuff came out, you know, I thought that was, I thought that it was classic Saj, actually, um, in terms of trying to find that compromise of, you know, not sort of having to deal with the sunk cost, um, understanding that business needed certainty on that line, but understanding that there needed to be some check on um, the, the cost and also reappraising what, you know, the next stage of the construction was going to be. That, to me, was sort of him at his best, delivering something that was politically palatable but also economically realistic. Mm. Do you think he'll keep, continue to press the Prime Minister on those points, on that fiscal responsibility? Well, I hope so, but I don't know. I don't know what his. I don't know what his thinking is, is at the moment. And are there issues that he's particularly passionate about? Like I know he's talked a lot about social mobility in the past. Yes, education is definitely one of uh, his sort of pet projects. Education, uh, further education and skills. Mm -hmm. So um, I hopefully he'll do a lot more on that. He also, uh, I remember from the Home Office, you know, really really cared about online harms and uh, child protection and he'd never talk about this himself but he supports privately children's lots of children's charities um, so I imagine you know the next phase for him might involve some of that. Um, can we just have a word for Rishi Sunak the new Chancellor who's also made history by becoming the first Hindu Chancellor and I think one of the youngest ever at 39 Probably yeah. a bit older than Osborne. Osborne yeah. was the youngest. Yeah. It's interesting because uh, um, although... He's uh, just going to be a puppet now, isn't he? Well, I think that's number the 10. big danger for him. That's how it will look now, inevitably. Yeah. I mean, he'll be tarred with that. You know, baby Chino, as we were just saying earlier. Uh, <laughs> is, it might be <laughs> Chancellor in Nainomi, but, um, but baby version. Yeah. Um, the... <laughs> The, the problem for him is, at, at what point in the next year, is it, or over the next two years, he's going to assert himself as, as saying, I, actually, I am independent from number 10. Maybe they'll manufacture some little row. It wouldn't surprise me if they'll do some little row where it's all choreographed and he stands up and says, well, we've got to do this, and then the PM says, actually, I think you're right, just to give him a bit of credibility, which will, get, again, just prove he's another puppet, if, if that is choreographed. Yeah, it'd be clever in the lead-up uh, to the budget, wouldn't it, next yeah, month? Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, the problem is, the interesting thing about him, though, is that just as um, Saj had real experience, extensive experience working in the city in various banks. Um, uh, as a pal of mine who works in a hedge fund said, actually, he's the first hedgy who's a chancellor, first hedge fund manager, um, which is different from Saj. Saj did a different bit of brokerage, but this is a former hedge fund guy who, you know, questions are going to be asked. What did you short? Did you short any banks? You worked for hedge funds that used to short banks. Which banks did you short? You made personally lots of money out of this and that. I think that could be quite interesting. I mean, people will be crawling over it, I suspect. Yeah, interesting times. What do yeah. you think of Rishi Sunak, Summer? So, um, Is he going to be seen as a puppet of number 10, inevitably? So, Rishi was uh, one of Saj's junior ministers in local government, and he ran a very difficult bit of the department, uh, which centred around local government finance. And I can tell you that uh, he was universally loved. Um, he was brilliant with kind of, you know, what Westminster, or corporate speakers, stakeholders. So he was fantastic with local government. He was fantastic with officials. You know, we as the special advisers loved him. Sajid absolutely thought he was marvellous. So when he turned up as chief secretary to Sajid, it was kind of a, a match made in heaven. Um, on the point of whether he'll, he'll be a puppet, I think that he'll probably surprise people at how robust he can be. 
Um, the thing is that he's actually incredibly charming and, you know, he can, he can get a lot done without getting very het up about it. So I will be interested to see how that works out because he's, he will know that everybody is having this conversation and he is smart enough to have assessed, you know, where his weak points are. He's not sort of a big ego and thinks that, you know, the world is owed to him. He's incredibly hardworking um, and he's diligent, but he is not afraid to speak truth to power. And I have witnessed that myself with him. So I, I wouldn't write him off just yet. What are his weak points? Oh, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave you guys to judge that yourself as time goes on. <laughs> Well, away from the Treasury, Geoffrey Cox, Julian Smith, Andrea Leadsom, Theresa Villiers and Esther McVeigh were among the ministers fired today. Alex Sharma was one of the biggest beneficiaries, replacing Leadsom as business secretary and landing the prize job of taking charge of the COP26 climate summit. And there were a few surprises lower down the ranks as Transport Ministers George Freeman and Nuz Ghani lost their jobs. Former Cabinet Minister Justin Greening had earlier urged the PM to be bold. Here she is. There's bags of talent in the Conservative Party and on the backbenches. And there's bags of talent in the Conservative Party and on the backbenches. And, you know, I, I think my advice to Boris would be, unlike Gordon Brown, Theresa May, David Cameron, you have a massive majority. So rather than starting with the team you've got and then evolving from that, my view is he should be starting with a blank sheet of paper and saying, in terms of my agenda of levelling up Britain, what's the team I need to deliver that for people on the ground? And that's how he should approach this reshuffle. I think he should be really bold. I think people have probably seen enough of the same old faces and, and want to see a fresh government with a fresh team and fresh ideas. Was this a bold reshuffle, Paul? <laughs> Botched reshuffle by his hands <laughs> of it so far. Uh, but, yeah, bold in the sense that, um, I mean, Suella Braverman being appointed to the, be... The new Geoffrey Cox sounds like a really kind of odd move, given that everyone was saying Lucy Fraser will get it. And I hate to say it, but maybe the only real qualification that he looked at there was whether or not she was a Brexiteer, and Lucy Fraser wasn't, and Braverman was. Um, maybe that was the calculation. Maybe that's the calculation across the government. Rishi was a Brexiteer. Sage wasn't. Um, you know, maybe we keep saying, or number 10 saying, Brexit is over, we don't talk about the B word. Maybe it's got more importance than any of us think. And that actually, in, in certainly in Dominic Cummings' mind, in number 10's mind, you know, that is really, really important. Do, are you a true believer in the project? What's your history like? I mean, we're, it's already being briefed that actually the real reason for Julian Smith being fired was not over something to do with the rights of uh, the, the military and prosecutions, but because he spoke out against no deal prep not being done properly um, for Northern Ireland last year. And again, that's again through the Brexit, the, through the lens of Brexit. George Freeman on this very podcast saying no deal would be a disaster. Last exactly. Week. And yeah. all these, th these little black marks were gathered over time and they've come home to roost, it seems. So I don't know. I think that's the problem for the government. It, it, it says it doesn't, it's not interested in Brexit, it's moved on. But maybe Brexit's hangover is still there in this reshuffle. I think one of the interesting questions is just who challenges the Prime Minister now? Who, who is he sitting across the table from? Who's going to say no to him? Yeah. So I think it's, um, it's quite interesting because the briefing from Number 10 in the run-up, I mean, you know, from government in the run-up to the reshuffle, was all about a question of competence, right? So, you know, it all landed quite well, is that, you know, we were going to funnel women through so that they could be the leaders of the future and all that kind of stuff, you know, and it all sounded very reasonable, very sensible. Um, I also was of the 
position that, you know, Brexit is done, withdrawal agreements out of the way. So actually that sort of balance doesn't matter anymore. Except, yes, you're right, we've all missed something. And that is that, you know, you can't have people who are going to be pushing for an extension to the transition period at the end of this year, which is a distinct possibility. And if you want to keep that big group of the ERG on side, you know, who are also kind of still jittery, even though the withdrawal agreement has passed, um, you can't have people within the government who are going to create tension um, around that and sort of push for um, extension of transition. Um, or, indeed, um, talking about divergence with, with rules, if we're going to go for a full trade agreement with the EU, um, what are the baseline assumptions that we need to make about diverging? So maybe there is an element of people who will actually just hunker down and do what is asked of them, in many ways like a campaign structure rather than a, a, a governance structure. And does that go beyond Brexit as well? I mean, Suella Braveman, for example, has been standing up in the Commons and saying the judges have overreached in terms of politics and we need to restore um, the power back with politicians, you know, a lot, like a lot of what um, Number 10 is saying and a lot of what we think Geoffrey Cox and maybe even Robert Buckland were arguing against. Yeah, I mean, that, that stands to reason. And I... I think the problem is, is that if you are so tunnel vision over something that is so complex, you will be missing a lot of things that will come back and bite you without you even realising it. You know, I was I wasn't in the Home Office for a particularly long time, but I can tell you trying to stay across everything and getting everyone just to chug away in one direction is kind of counterproductive. And, you know, if you have too many yes people in government, you're right, who, who stands up and says, guys, I think there's a problem here. Um, and indeed, who are, who are the people that then look to their officials and say, yeah, no, we're, we're really going to have to shift on this without, you know, getting permission from, from number 10 to do so. You know, lots of decisions are happening all the time. You can't have this structure where, you know, there's kind of like a core number of people deciding. Lots of decisions are made lots of times in lots of different places across government. You can't be in control of all of it. And again, in terms of Brexit, you, uh, Salma rightly mentioned the Home Office. Priti Patel kept her job at the Home Office. There was some briefing that maybe she was going to be moved early on. She kept her job. Why? She's a Brexiteer. She's a true believer. And so it seems, again, that that's the main qualification. It's not competence, it seems, but it's, you know, your ideological stripe when it well, comes I will, to Brexit. I will challenge that a little bit, because you've got Oliver Dowden now in DCMS, and well, he is, he is a very competent fair. minister. That is, that's, and, and Rishi that's might be true. young, but he is competent. But Suella Braverman, I mean, I looked up on Wikipedia earlier on today... I was slightly surprised to find out she'd gone to Cambridge, but just in the way I was slightly surprised that Richard Bergen went to Cambridge. She, <laughs> she, is, she is the Richard Bergen of the Tory party, is she not? Where did she go? I can't remember which college, but she went uh, somewhere in Cambridge. She's <laughs> yeah. the Richard Bergen, right? OK. <laughs> no, I did. I couldn't, but, but I don't, see, I don't like that, because that is a bit snobby. You can go to... I mean, I didn't go to an Oxford University, and, I, did I. and, I, and I'm pretty competent, <laughs> so... No, that's what I'm saying. It's just slightly... I don't know. I don't know. No, no, it's, but it's, it's the fact me. that you're like, oh, she, she went to Cambridge. God. No, not at all. She doesn't seem like she went to Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think she's, she's an advert for why Cambridge isn't as elite as it thinks it is. Put it that way. That's that's the one I'm trying oh, well, to get. I d well, um, I've become a policy fellow at Cambridge recently. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're not going to win in this argument. <laughs> we're, we're going a bit on a tangent here. But um, on a more serious point, a, a couple of people have raised today that the fact that government has lost its. Um, only two ministers uh, with a Muslim background, which is maybe not a great look for a party facing allegations of Islamophobia. Do you think it matters? 
Uh, yeah, I do actually. I do think it matters. Um, only insofar as if we are trying to create this, you know, broad consensus for when the next election comes round, it is very sad that people representing a community aren't there in, in uh, positions of making decisions. Um, although, you know, broadly the ethnic minority count is good. Um, I do think that there is like an important constituency that is is now missing from the top table. And do you think they've just overlooked that? They just. I think that's, but when you're in a position where you have an 80-strong majority and you're doing your first reshuffle and you feel all-powerful, I think there are many things like that that you can overlook. I think David Cameron couldn't afford to overlook that kind of stuff because that was his pitch and he was, you know, all about that broad coalition. And so he really, that was a kind of like a top priority. Whereas here, whether it's kind of whether you're Brexit enough or whether you're competent enough or, you know, that seems to be the major consideration. And every reshuffle has its own flavour in that way. And it is all based around the context of your your political authority and your political power. Yeah, I guess it's not a kind of election cabinet or ministerial team, is it? So well, the, the, not... That's the thing that struck me, though. I mean, maybe he'll change later on in the year. We'll keep being told this is a first reshuffle. And that obviously is quite a good thing to hold over all the ministers to keep them in, in line to say actually this isn't the end of it there's going to be another one and we're, we're doing all these ministers of state we're promoting these women so that we can possibly bring them forward later next year or something like that I get that but what really surprises me is that he hasn't really attempted to do a sort of northern voices in this reshuffle mm. I mean what that's a massive sort of miss isn't it I mean why not try and promote for example I mean, we might find out tomorrow but why not promote someone from the red wall who's been there you know uh, a sort of advocate of of what this government stands for. Someone I mean, like Lee Rowley. Someone like that, exactly. Um, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, to be fair, is the one exception to that. She's been a northeastern Tory and a Brexiteer for quite a long time, and boy is, she she, boy, is she competent, definitely. I think everyone would agree that was a really great appointment to the Cabinet. But you need more people like that, more sort of northern Tories, and, and, and just the way they speak. Only this week, I was listening to the HS2 debate, and you're struck by how many northern accents there are yeah. on the Tory benches now. And yet, in Cabinet, how many Northern accents will there be? I don't know. Yeah, it's an, I think that's an interesting point. One of the appointments that really surprised me was Alok Sharma. Um, I also, he's kind of now looking after COP26. Mm. But I thought they'd pick someone that's much more of like a political operator, considering that um, it's going to be held in Glasgow and they're going to, there's going to be a lot of clashes with Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP. But you can go down the route of being too presentational as well. Mm. So, again, Alok Sharma is... You love Alok. You've, I, know I, I have I. the softest spot for Alok. He is a marvel. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Um, he came in as the housing minister after the 2017 election debacle and a week in uh, the job we had Grenfell and I have never known a minister to react so well to something. I mean, he was absolutely... Sorry, I'm going to get emotional about this. Oh, God. It was a very, it was a very trying time for all of us. Um, he really pulled it together. I have, I have the utmost respect for him. And I think somebody who can be diplomatic and handle things like that I think would be brilliant in COP26. Well, I remember um, you saying at the time he'd been brilliant on Grenfell. Yeah. Um, he'd met a lot of the victims, yeah. spent a lot of time with them, didn't he? Um, I'm just going to go through some of the other kind of mini narratives of the reshuffle. And if anyone wants to comment on any of it, then please do. Gove not moving. Yeah. yeah. What's that about? I thought that was really strange. I mean, Michael Gove, obviously, the one person in the entire cabinet who surely is the biggest threat to Boris Johnson because he's knifed him in the front and in the back previously. Um, 
is getting a sort of bigger role and it sounds like it's sensible on one level he's smart and putting him in charge of Brexit negotiations for the year and as Asama said you know that's going to be the big thing in this year how much do we diverge how, how little do we diverge and it might be that Michael Gove's word is 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 law there rather than Rishi Sunak's to be honest um, so that's I understand why from Gove's point of view that's quite a good thing to do but he would have actually been brilliant in that COP26 role because he, he's former environment secretary. He's one of the most, you know, green Tories that they've got who understands the brief. Maybe it was just that you simply couldn't ask, ask him to do everything. Um, but I don't know. I, I think it's kind of a big job, though, the cabinet office job that he has to it deliver. It is a huge it's job. Huge. It's a bit effectively Brexit secretary, isn't it, without an all but name? But also, you know, COP26 will sort of remove him from this from this kind of arena and where he needs to be is um you know right in the thick of things that's where i think michael is happiest and that's where he's the most effective as well so if you've got this really huge challenge and you want your believers and you want your competence he sort of you know fits that venn diagram perfectly um and you know even though he's got this terrible rep uh, for not being trustworthy, you know, officials absolutely adore him because he makes them relevant. You know, he he's punchy and he has ideas and he can deliver them and he knows how to execute things. So actually, if if I'd been in that position, I would want Michael exactly where he is. And, and of course, the bridge between Boris Johnson and Michael Gove is Dominic Cummings. Yeah. It's very, very important to remember that. Yeah. Dominic Cummings absolutely loves him. You know, he, I mean, Gove was the best man at Cummings' wedding, wasn't he? You know, they're, they're very close. They had that sort of mentality when they were at the DfE of them against the world. And I can imagine why they want him to do the Brexit stuff. But I just think that if I'd been the PM, I would have been very tempted to say, actually, can I get you to do this thing called COP26, which actually, as much as Brexit might define my government forever, because if we get it right, and Michael Gove, is friendly, one of the very few people like the Prime Minister who's friendly with um, Donald Trump, who knows Donald Trump, and Trump will be the key to getting any agreement later this year. If you look at the bigger picture beyond Brexit, what this government's going to be remembered for, that, that could be a massive opportunity yeah. to get it right. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Gove hanging out with Greta Thunberg, though? <laughs> well, yes, 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 yes. Because he's quite smart at that kind of thing. He would have made her sort of, you know, he could have used her just as everyone else seems to be using her. He could have used her as a sort of symbol of the success or breakthrough in those talks. You know, but I, that's, that is, I have to say, the genius of Michael Gove, somebody who can, you know, talk to Trump as well as Thunberg. Yeah. You know, this, this, he's, he is this great bridger. It could have Strangely. worked, but I think that ship has sailed, obviously, now. And on Brexit, Gove went a little bit soggy in the end on Brexit and, and, and kind of started coming around to Theresa May's thinking, mm. it seemed like at the time. Is it that fair like. to say? <laughs> well, it was hard to tell, wasn't it, really, whether or not... I mean, the I think history he, books were recorded. But I think, I think everybody was in a situation where they just wanted to move on from it. I think that was, I think right, that was yeah. the driving force rather than anything else. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, again, going back to this 80-seat majority that changed the whole picture of Westminster politics, you know, it meant that there was space for Brexiteers to actually, you know, get something else. Yeah. And um, what about Liz Truss staying at trade? I don't think that was a, a massive surprise after after last week, because uh, Boris Johnson said that he was well, quite keen on her staying. I thought trade was going to be abolished. What happened to all the departments that were going to be abolished? Yeah, good point. <laughs> Yeah, she's a great survivor, obviously. And mm. again, sort of, I don't, we don't know what's happened to Ben Wallace, but again, there was a lot of briefing about uh, him. Yes. But um, that maybe Ben Wallace is, is proof that actually, although he was a, a Remainer, that actually that personal connection with the Prime Minister ultimately 
is real in crowd really matters. So he had bigger rows with the Prime Minister than Julian Smith, yet survives. Um, and that's because he's very closely associated with the PM over a long period. I also think it would have been a big risk to jettison Liz Truss. She's not the shy and retiring type, I don't think. <laughs> I don't think she would have been no problem for him on the backbenches. Well, yeah, yeah who, who, who could cause trouble on the backbenches from the sack ministers? Um, well, Julian Smith, a former former whip, so I think he kind of probably knows where all the bodies are buried. Yes. Um, Andrew Leadsom, I don't think, is going to go quietly. Yeah, I think Esther McVeigh is obviously very close to the blue-collar Conservatives, so probably we'll keep an eye on Johnson to see how, how liberal he becomes. Um, there are loads of people who could cause him a problem, yeah. I was just to return to one of your earlier points, though, I, th I wonder if the focus might be less on the North from now on and more on the Union, because if you think um, there been a lot of reports That's that very good point. Uh, Johnson might want a uh, 2024 election, so you might be thinking now that um, he's reached a high watermark with Labour seats and if he wants to make gains and hang on to his position at the next election that would be in Scotland, that he would continue to gain seats. Yeah, I think the union is going to be a really big sort of lingering issue that sort of is not quite in our peripheral vision yet, but mm. everybody's thinking about. And, you know, there, there was a lot of issue uh, around the union consistently since the independence uh, referendum and then subsequently the Brexit referendum. And there's a real big challenge because nobody quite knows what the answer is. Mm. No unionist quite knows what the answer is. Um, you know, there's a real sort of easy sell for people who want independence in, in Scotland or reunification in Ireland, which is another kind of big issue that's, that's coming up. And um, I think with, with all this sort of pressure around Brexit, you know, where is that carve out going to be for people doing the thinking about protecting, saving the union? Yeah, and sacking Julian Smith doesn't look like a very smart move in that respect, in that he's very recently been the only... Secretary of State has been able to bring both sides together in Northern Ireland for the first yeah, time in years. That's why it seems baffling, which is why, yeah. again, I repeat, his big sin was apparently mouthing off over no deal and Brexit. So it's as if that's more important than actually building relationships in Northern Ireland and, and the Republic. I mean, it's been really interesting, the outpouring, not just in the Republic from people like Leo Varadkar, but in from the North of Ireland and Northern Ireland, as it, it should be known. Um, Northern Ireland politicians <laughs> are all saying... <laughs> are all saying, uh, actually, wasn't the guy brilliant? You know, across community. And it's quite... It's very rare a politician gets yeah. that much of an outpouring of support from people after he's lost his job. Yeah. So he obviously really did a lot of work on, on building those sort of contacts. I mean, if Karen Bradley couldn't do it, then... <laughs> uh, right, it's time for the quiz. Um, yeah! And it's all, it's all on um, <laughs> ministerial really. resignations, which we've kind of done before, but the questions are different this time. No, that's good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that helps. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just shout the answer if you've got it. Um, Boris Johnson was kind of mocked for resigning the day after David Davis over Theresa May's checkers plan for Brexit. But another minister did go on the same day as Davis. Who was it? Oh, God. Didn't they both go in the same car? Or, or they both got or they, one car after another? Oh, who was it? Who was the minister then that would have resigned? Oh, Dominic Robb wasn't in Cabinet at that point because he took over after. Not necessarily Cabinet. Oh, so it's not... when you quit the government. Mm. Um... It's a junior minister, I'll give you that. George Eustace? No. ERG? 
Oh, Baker. Yeah. Um, right, right. You, that's too, oh, ma- right. too many clues. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah, Baker said said he and Davis have been blindsided by the Chequers plan and quit as a Brexit minister along. Oh yes, there was so a lot of mocking, wasn't there? Yeah, he was the minister responsible for it. Yeah, <laughs> a long time ago now. Um, Theresa May's government again, because there were a lot of resignations. So, who were the first and last ministers to quit Theresa May's government? Ooh, <gasps> that's great trivia. Who was the last? Rob. Ooh. Don't think so. Is it McVeigh last to quit? I don't think so. Uh, it was a first, Treasury Minister. The first one? Treasury Minister. Treasury Minister. Pass. <laughs> Pass yeah. Do you want to go at the last one? Go on. Uh, yeah, no idea. We're yes. all lost. Too hard. <laughs> first Minister was uh, Lord Jim O'Neill. Oh, right, because it's more than five. <laughs> she she was such a tricky question. That's a peer. I'm a Northern powerhouse. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, uh, I think it was more about China as well. Oh, OK, uh, yeah. May's hawkish approach to right, China. Okay. That's point. good trivia. And the final one was Andrea Ledsom. Who oh. Fired, oh, of course it was. Finally snapped she over the compromises really in the Brexit bill. The Labour thing, yeah. Talking to Labour. Yeah. Good question. Right, does That's anyone it. want a point here? Yeah. Um, who, was the, who was the last chancellor? It's like the championship uh, promotion race, this. No one wants to win. Um, who was the last chancellor to resign? Philip Hammond. No. Oh, well, it's a reshuffle. Just ever. Just quit. Nigel Lawson? Sajid. Yeah. Point. Nigel Lawson, yeah, told, told Margaret Thatcher she had to choose between him and her personal advisor, Sir Alan Walters. <gasps> Do you know familiar. why? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's over the ERM, wasn't it? Uh, the EMU, the European, yeah. the EMU, yeah. um, the European, European Monetary, Monetary Union. Union. Yeah, I think the advisor was right in the end, so... unfortunately that's all we have time for this week thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to commons people on all the usual channels so you can catch us every thursday and be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the war zone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes Uh, we'll just leave you with dominic cummings thoughts on the cabinet comment on the cabinet reshuffle PJ Masters will do a greater job than all of them put together.